I'm Mark Beattie, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. In this podcast, I'm going to highlight some of the content from the May edition. The first article I'm going to talk about is one by Peter Gill and colleagues, which reports a sustained year-on-year increase in emergency paediatric admissions over the last 10 years. That's quite a striking statement in the context of us expecting that the population would be getting healthier year by year. So in 1999, there were 63 per thousand youngsters under the age of 14 admitted to hospital. And that had increased by 2010 to 81. So that's about a 50% increase. This data has been got through analysis of hospital episode statistics and population estimates for England. Most of the increase is in admissions for less than 24 hours. And this has raised the issue as to whether that reflects a change in how healthcare is delivered. The conditions in which the biggest rises have been seen are upper respiratory tract infections, lower respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections and gastroenteritis. So core paediatric medical conditions, usually that present with a short history and usually that respond fairly well to standard treatment strategies. Interestingly, admissions for chronic conditions, so that's patients you might expect to be in hospital for longer, have actually fallen. So all sorts of things may have impacted on this. So this data needs to be interpreted in the context of the changes in how we deliver healthcare, particularly with the implementation of the four-hour wait and the change in out-of-hours primary care provision, but also in terms of parental expectations, thresholds for investigation and rapid investigative and diagnostic techniques. So this, I think, is a very important article to read and consider and reflect on in your own area of practice. The article is accompanied by an editorial by Colin Powell, paediatrician from Cardiff, who raises the important question as to whether we should change the way in which we deliver unscheduled care. In that, he emphasises the fact that we need to further and assess this data before we make any radical decision. The second article I'd like to talk about relates to the increase in prevalence of childhood visual impairment. So that's quite emotive and in the context of modern medicine quite surprising. So to put it in context, there are 19 million children who are visually impaired worldwide. 1.4 million are blind and 90% of those live in developing countries. So in this issue, Mystery and colleagues have looked at the temporal trends in incidence in England over the last 30 years. It's just important to be clear about definitions. So the definition of being blind is that you're so blind that you can't do any work for which eyesight is essential. There isn't a definition of partially sighted, but in the context of this report and accepted terminology nationally and internationally, it refers to substantial and permanent handicap by defective vision caused by congenital defect illness or injury. Now registration for blindness or 
partial sightedness is voluntary. And so this data looks at registrations. And what it shows that in all ages, registrations have reduced from 2.6 per 10,000 in 1982 to 1.7 per 10,000 in 2011. However, a subset of that data shows that there's been a rise in the incidence of paediatric registrations. So paediatric registrations are a small proportion of the total, but they've increased fairly dramatically from 0.2 to 0.59 per 10,000 during the same period. So this is a significant increase in the incidence and prevalence of visual impairment in childhood. It's information that surprised me as a clinician and made me as a clinician reflect on just how important it is to raise awareness of this, particularly as it will become increasingly important to ensure that there are adequate health, educational and social resources to cope with this increased need. The third paper I'd like to discuss relates to the risk-benefit of male circumcision. So even the title is controversial. The interesting context of this paper is that in the UK there are 30,000 circumcisions performed annually. Most of these are in the community and only rarely, and that's when there are specific indications funded by the NHS. So in 2012, the American Academy of Paediatrics radically changed their previous circumcision policy, asserting that the preventive benefits of circumcision in newborn infants, they are reduced urinary tract infections, reduced transmission of sexually transmitted infections at a later age, and a reduction in the incidence of penile cancer, outweigh the risk of the procedure when performed by trained professionals under sterile conditions with appropriate pain management. So that's a view that was not endorsed by other bodies, but does have fairly profound implications. In a leading article in this issue, Wheeler and Malone discuss the controversy regarding the policy but also discuss the risk associated with the procedure. The British Association of Paediatric Urologists has published standards of care that all boys should receive whenever the procedure is performed. The implication of that is that the clinicians who undertake these procedures outside the NHS need to adhere to the standards as published and audit and publish the outcome of audits of their practice. The fourth article that I'd like to highlight is a review written by Catherine Tuffy on adolescents with physical disability with the rather provocative title of seeing the individual in context. So adolescence, as we all know, is a time of profound developmental change, physically, cognitively and socially. And physical disability can produce significant barriers and challenges to that process. 
Catherine Tuffy discusses this, exploring fundamental issues such as the practicalities and timing of puberty and transition to the adult role when independent living and employment are less likely to be achieved. It's a realistic, appropriate and informative review. And it discusses different contexts, peer group and family, work, identity, leisure, autonomy, intimacy and sexuality. And in it, the author gives practical guidance on how clinicians and other healthcare professionals can support the process. This article is essential reading for those of us who care for young people with physical disability. There is within it a helpful list of suggestions for how health professionals can help young people negotiate through adolescence, which includes sensitive exploration of aspirations and expectations, encouraging socialisation, encouraging young people to explore their strengths, skills and autonomy, and recognition of the need for young people to have sufficient time alone when they choose, as well as time with friends without adults present. And that last part, very difficult to achieve if you are dependent on others for many aspects of your day-to-day -day care. I'd like to finish just by highlighting some of the content in Fetal and Neonatal this month. There's a number of articles looking at factors that influence outcome after extreme preterm birth. Abdul Latif and colleagues report worse neurodevelopmental outcome in infants conceived after assisted conception. In a separate paper by the same author across 10 different units, they report extreme preterm infants who survived the first few days have a reasonable chance of survival to discharge. And in a third paper, Boland and colleagues explore the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Calculator as a tool to predict morbidity and mortality at two years. The predictions of mortality are better than the predictions of morbidity, and the interesting aspect of this tool is that morbidity is probably overestimated. These data are useful and add further to the outcome data on extreme preterm infants and the factors that influence it and should therefore impact on our treatment strategies during that extremely vulnerable period. So I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.